0: Hello and welcome ladies and gentlemen to the Golfing Greenkeeper podcast. My name is Steve Smith and I'm your host. I've got something a bit different for you this time. It's Aussie golf history. It's a history segment into a part of golf in Australia and it's taken a lot for this one. So I'm really excited to bring it to you. I hope you're going to enjoy it. I'm sure you will along the way. It's titled Dan Suter's Sky High Design. This is episode number 72. This story is centred around a golf course and begins at a time when when golf was really emerging in Australia, working out if it was boom or bust for this Scottish sport in a newfound land. It's a great story of surprising history. Certainly, it felt that way as well while I was researching into it. It's It's a story of endurance, of community and of family. It involves a host of Australian Open Golf champions, some of whom became the biggest names in Australian golf, which you're going to find out. Two of Australia's most prolific golf course architects of their time are also involved in this story, and a couple of Sport Australia Hall of Fame inductees. There's a city lord mayor and a flower farmer. Yes, a flower farmer. So there's a lot coming. There's a lot coming. The story begins 110 years ago in 1912. A Scotsman by the name of Dan Souter was living and working in Sydney, New South Wales. And you can learn more about Dan Souter's story of just who he is in depth back in my episode of the Golf and Greenkeeper podcast back in episode number 11, so quite a long while ago. But if you go back through the back catalog, you will find a story that I've done on Dan Souter and just to give you more detail of who he is. But he's a key part of this story. Now, specifically, Dan was the golf professional at Manly Golf Club on the north side of Sydney Harbour in an area that we now call the Northern Beaches. Manly Golf Club had only been an 18-hole golf course for four years at that time, opening for play in 1908. Dan was a busy man in golf in Australia at that time. The previous year, in 1911, for example, he travelled to New Zealand to play in a professional exhibition match, and whilst over there, he designed a new 18-hole golf course for the Christchurch Golf Club. He'd also travelled to Mudgee in central western New South Wales to design a new nine-hole golf course for that club as well, and if that wasn't enough, on top of being the pro at Manly Golf Club, Dan was instrumental with a number of other prominent golfers to establish the PGA of Australia, for which he served as the national chairman for quite some time. Now, I'm going to narrow down the location of the golf course in this story, and no, it's not Manly Golf Club. Slightly inland from the east coast of Australia, running north-south for the majority of the whole Australian mainland, is the mighty Great Dividing Range. To the west of Sydney, upon that range, is the very well-known, unique and world-renowned Blue Mountains region. These Blue Mountains are a landscape of Tableland Mountains that at their highest stand over at one kilometre up in the sky, pushing 1,300 metres in places. They're made of sandstone layers that over the eons of time, water from the many rivers has eroded these tablelands to reveal a rugged landscape of sheer cliffs and deep gorges. This landscape was so rugged that it was considered for a time impassable by the early colonial settlers of Australia. But once a passage was found, however, the Blue Mountains was opened up as a tourist destination and later to those seeking the health benefits of the cool mountain air. And being so close to Sydney was what made the Blue Mountains. And pretty soon some people were beginning to make the Blue Mountains their home and others, more wealthy, the location of their family summer holiday retreats to escape the Sydney heat. And this brings us to the story of Dan Souter's sky-high design. The first golf club of the Blue Mountains began 10 years earlier than 1912, back in 1902, and was a course built in the small township of Lura which began life known simply as the Blue Mountains Golf Club. Dan Souter would work at the Blue Mountains Golf Club in 1909 for over 12 months in the role as manager and professional. And he would travel up and down the mountains via steam train, which was really the only reliable way to travel back then. But this isn't a story about Lura Golf Club either. Wentworth Falls is another small township in those world-famous Blue Mountains And it's the town to the east of Lura, the next town. And that's where I grew up as well. This is the story of Wentworth Falls Country Club. In 1912, it was reported in the Sydney Morning Herald that an effort was being made to form a golf club at Wentworth Falls. Turns out, a small group of influential people were behind the push to form a golf club and build a golf course at Wentworth Falls. Now, these people were, and I can name them for you, they were Robert Matcham-Pitt, John McLaughlin, John Charles Matthew C, that's a, that's a big name, and James Wall. Now, it's important to understand who these guys were in order to get a feel for how this new golf club was going to be formed back then. Now, as I'm learning, most golf clubs in Australia were started by influential, often wealthy people. But contrary to what I've been always led to believe, that doesn't always mean those golf clubs were kept exclusive, which you will learn in time. We're often led to believe that because they were started by wealthy people, they were kept exclusive from everyone else. But that's not the case, and this is a story that I'll show you. To give you an idea of who these blokes were, let's start with Robert Matcham Pitt, or RM Pitt, as he was known. RM was the main driver of the idea of forming the golf club and will put a great deal of effort into it over the following years. RM was part owner of a large company called Pitt, Son and Badgery that were stock and station agents in Sydney back then in New South Wales. Pitt's son and badgery were started by RM's father, George Matcham Pitt, and Robert was the son in the company name. George Pitt himself was granted land in Wentworth Falls in 1880, but he never did anything with the land, and ultimately, after George's passing, the land at Wentworth Falls was handed down to his son, RM. RM was a lover of the Blue Mountains, And it wasn't long before he worked on building a family summer cottage up there named Coora, after his father's large pastoral property of the same name near Gwida on the northern tablelands of New South Wales. Now, Coora would ultimately become the full time residence of RM, his wife, and family of eight children in 1889. And he would ultimately turn the whole of the Coora property into a wonderful country estate full of beautiful gardens. Lots of tree plantings, masses of flowers and his very own private golf course, which could be seen from the railway line by train travellers passing by back then in the late 1800s. In fact, RM and Cura would soon become famous in the Blue Mountains, Sydney and indeed Australia and also in horticulture circles in the UK You see, RM established a large flower farm, among other things on the property at Coora. There was was plantings of over 2,000 fruit trees. Now, he, he was really right into this stuff, really right into it. RM was one of the first people to introduce daffodils into Australia. His flower farm was mainly, you guessed it, daffodils. That was the majority of his farm in the end. He would work on his property in the daffodils, hybridizing various varieties, a couple of which he named after two of his children, and he sold enormous amounts of flowers and bulbs across the east coast of Australia back then. Now, being at that level of business, and this was a business for him on top of Pitt Sun and Badgery, stock and station agents selling real estate and properties and, and, and livestock and all sorts of stuff. So he was a big business. That's a, this was big business. Now, being at that level of business that he was, he mixed in high-profile circles and he also enjoyed opera. Random, I suppose. I don't know. I don't know what it was like back then, but, but he enjoyed opera. One story goes that he and his wife, Eugenia, were entertained with a private recital in their Coorah home at Wentworth Falls by none other than Dame Nellie Melba when she was visiting during some of her time spent in the Blue Mountains. Now, Dame Nellie Melba was a famous Australian opera singer, recognised the world over, and she was clearly such an important part of our cultural history of being Australia in the arts that she is on one side of the current Australian $100 note. I bet you didn't know that little bit of history, little tidbit of information. She was a big name to have singing in your house, as the pits did. Now, Melba was such a fan of daffodils, and RM and Eugenia were such fans of Melba, that RM sent Melba 20,000 daffodil bulbs to her home in Melbourne after a performance she gave in Sydney. He had a few daffodil bulbs to give away as it was reported that his property of Kura had stock listed of over half a million bulbs in 1897. So this gives you an idea of the scale of this farm at Wentworth Falls and also the guy who RM was. Now at Cura RM also built his very own nine-hole golf course like I mentioned earlier. There's also one report that I found in a Sydney newspaper that it became a 14-hole golf course and was, at the time, soon to become an 18-hole golf course. They were the reports, so that's interesting, on his own property. So he was clearly a fan of golf. But it never expanded quite that far to 18 holes that that I'm aware of, anything that I can find in my research. RM was a true lover of the outdoors, the arts, and, as it would seem, golf. Now, next in the queue of the four men that were the, the people behind Wentworth Falls Golf Club starting, next was John McLaughlin. McLaughlin was a solicitor based in Sydney and lived with his wife at Waverley. They built a holiday house called Torella in Wentworth Falls in 1890 across the road from what would become Wentworth Falls Golf Club. John was a member of the Legislative Assembly of New South Wales. He was Honorary Treasurer of the Incorporated Law Institute of New South Wales and also in the New South Wales Volunteer Force. Now, being in the New South Wales Volunteer Force, he was entitled by an act passed by the New South Wales Parliament in 1868 to a grant of 50 acres of land, which he chose at Wentworth Falls, and subsequently built Torella. I love a good tangent. So here we go again. So try this one. See if you can follow me here. John's wife was Ada, and her maiden name was Moore. Turns out her uncle was Charles Moore, the Lord Mayor of Sydney from 1867-1869, and of whom Moore Park in Sydney is named after. And I'm sure you've heard me talk about Moore Park Golf Club before, the People's Golf Course, as it's called in Sydney. Now to give you an idea as to the significance of Torella, it is now a historical attraction of Wentworth Falls and is home to the Blue Mountains Historical Society. So again, we're talking about how big these names were, these families were and these properties were back in the late 1800s. The other two people I mentioned were John Charles Matthew C. And he was the son of Sir John C., who was a former Premier of New South Wales. Sir John C. owned a property on the south side of Wentworth Falls called Yester Grange. Now, that's a popular heritage building for uh, for weddings and major function venue and all that these days at the moment on the uh, on the southern side of Wentworth Falls. It's a beautiful homestead. Yester Grange would ultimately become an extended C. family holiday retreat back then, including to his son, John Charles Matthew C. and his family after the passing of Sir John C. in nineteen oh seven. So Sir John C. passed away before Wentworth Falls was started, but but his son was up there at Yester Grange regularly, and he was part of this push to start Wentworth Falls Golf Club. And there was also James Wall, who I mentioned was the last name. Now he happened to be the president of the Blue Mountain Shire Council in nineteen twelve. So if you're going to start a golf course, you're going to need the council on your side as well. So why not have the president? <laughs> being one of the people pushing this so that gives you an idea these guys were all very influential people at the time and were four of the six directors of Wentworth Falls Golf and Recreation Company Limited back then when all of this began now on April the 3rd 1913 a prospectus was put forward by the proposed Wentworth Falls Golf and Recreation Company Limited to purchase 45 acres of land for a golf course from an estate subdivision with it was a report by the one and only Dan Souter. Now, as mentioned, Dan was a p- golf professional and he was also a champion player, having by then won the Australian Amateur Championship in 1903. Now, that was the year that he arrived in Australia from Scotland. He was the Australian Open winner in 1905, the Australian PGA Champion in 1905 and 1906. He was a golf course architect, having designed the first nine-hole golf course for Maji Golf Club in 1906 and put forward a design for Royal Adelaide also in 1906, Royal Adelaide Golf Club in 1906. He designed Concord Golf Club's first course in 1907, and as I previously mentioned, in 1911, designed the new course for the Christchurch Golf Club in New Zealand. That gives you an idea of what Dan had already achieved before this idea of building a golf course at Wentworth Falls was started. So he was a massive name in golf in Australia, on many levels, from a playing perspective, but also from a design, golf course, design and architecture perspective. So he'd done a lot of the big name courses uh, around the place and put forward some ideas that weren't picked up like Royal Adelaide. But, But at this time, if you wanted someone to build a golf course, Dan was your man. And he was huge. You know, very, very influential. He was also the author at this time, of what is now a historically significant book written in 1906 titled The Australian Golfer. His report stated about the Wentworth Falls golf course that he was building and designing, and I quote, "'This piece of ground is a bit on the small side "'for a championship course, is very well situated, "'and is quite large enough "'for a first-class nine-hole holiday course. "'It is easily undulating, and there are no steep pinches,' so that every yard of country could be utilised for golf. The timber and scrub on this are not very heavy, and clearing would not be a very expensive matter. And, as the ground itself is mostly of a sandy nature, grass could be made to grow, provided the water supply sufficient. And I understand from Mr Rayner that a splendid supply can be got by sinking wells. I have made a rough draft of a course which works out at 2,200 yards, but, of course... That is only approximate, but would be a very good guide to the length of the course. I have no hesitation in saying that should you desire to put your course on this bit of country, provided you can stand the expense, that you would have a better course than the present Lura course, as the ground is more suitable owing to its sandy nature, and the greens and fairways would be well grassed, which is a decided advantage. Altogether, I think this would make a very good golf course, signed Dan Souter. On June 6, 1913, in the Blue Mountains Echo, which was a Blue Mountains newspaper back then, there was an article titled, Hey Caddy, and I quote for you. The golf links are still going strong, and it is expected that the public tenders will be called early next week for the necessary clearing of the fairways. So clearly, they were were ready to rock and roll. Still quote. On Thursday last, Mr. D.G. Souter, the golfing expert employed by the Wentworth Falls Golf Links company, took a run-up on a taxi from Sydney, accompanied by three other devotees of the game. On arrival, they announced Inter Alia, which means, like, among other things, they announced Inter Alia that on reaching the bridge that spans the South Creek at St. Mary, so this is in Western, so Sydney's western suburbs, They found, roughly speaking, about two feet of flood water of a pea soup colour flowing over the deck of the bridge. Believing in the maxim that he who hesitates is lost, the quartet rushed the taxi at the crossing as if all the demons from Sheol were pursuing them. Halfway across, the water found the sparking arrangement and, as a result, the spark decided to strike. The car immediately followed suit. After five minutes had elapsed, anyone with a camera would have obtained good material for a pictorial postcard and would have seen suitor minus boots, shoes and unmentionables, together with his other shipwrecked companions, pushing the car through the floodwaters to the other side. How <laughs> isn't that a ripper story back then? I mean, motor cars were, you know, I suppose they are a bit of a luxury, I think, I imagine in the early 1900s. But uh, clearly, someone found a funny moment. I love the way they write back then. The, the the way that they use the English language, it's changed so much in modern times, but I love reading these old stories, and that's a little bit of a funny one of the boys getting stuck and uh, having to push the car. Dan Souter, pushing the car through floodwaters. It was just something else you had to do back then, I suppose. You couldn't call in RMA And we move on. November 7, 1913, again in the Blue Mountains Echo. It says, "'The clearing of the course is nearly completed,' And a competent gardener has been engaged in repairing the greens and the fairways under the supervision of Dan Souter. So we've gone from June 6, with uh, things getting ready and sorted, to November 7. So what's that, five months, six months, thereabouts, and they've nearly finished clearing the the nine-hole golf course. Now December 2, 1913, so a month later, an article by Dan Souter. These are quotes from uh, from the articles I'll read them out as, as they are as they are written so here goes: "The success of the golf links at Lura caused the people of other townships on the mountains to look around for a similar attraction for themselves and links were formed at Springwood, Blackheath and Lawson. but they were not as successful as they might have been while living on the mountains a few years ago and traveling to and from Sydney two or three times a week and remember this was by steam train. I was often struck with the idea that the prettily situated township of Wentworth Falls could be made very popular if golf links were established, as the ground around there struck me as being more suitable than any other place I had seen on the mountains. It appeared to be more sandy and have more body in it, and grass grew more luxuriantly. The lake which supplies the water for the railway engines was an additional attraction, and I thought that if golf links were laid out in the vicinity they must become popular. The success of Lura would be repeated at Wentworth Falls. This impression has been shared by other people, as a company has been formed, of which Mr R.M. Pitt, well known to Sydney business people, as the head of the well-known wool and stock firm of Pitt, Son and Badgery, but to golfers, as one of the keenest players who ever wielded a driver or mashie, is the chairman of directors. The ground is situated about a quarter of an hour's walk from the railway station, but, in all probability, a new road will be formed, and the journey shortened by at least five minutes. It is on the right hand side of the railway, travelling from Sydney, and is splendidly situated for golf links, as the ground lies in a hollow with an easterly aspect, and the piercing westerly winds are hardly felt. The soil is good. A small creek which winds through the full length of the course will provide an excellent hazard at a number of the holes, besides being the means of a water supply, a very important consideration on any golf course, but more so on the mountains where the soil is more hungry than nearer to the coast. The course will be of nine holes to commence with, but I understand enough land can be got in the vicinity to increase the length to 18 if required. The links are bound to become popular owing to their situation and the quality of the soil and, in time, I have no doubt will become the best golf course on the mountains. Being within 3 or 4 miles of Lura Station and in a direct line 2 miles of Lura Golf Links will also add to their popularity as each course will act as an overflow to the other. Instead of being opposition courses and working against each other's interests, the fact of them being so close together will be to their mutual advantage, as there is sufficient demand for two good golf courses on the mountains. Signed, DG Suter. The course Suter had designed for Wentworth Falls Golf and Recreation Company was a nine-hole course on the 45 acres of land he had to play with. As you heard in this article, the site was a hollow with a creek. The creek meandered through seven of the nine holes. And I'll give you these little bits of details about the site. The creek meandered through seven of the nine holes, Suter would design, but only really challenged play on five of those seven holes as two of them were to become a very short carry just in front of the tee on holes one and nine. The hollow runs basically east-west, for about two-thirds of the property, and then turned south before leaving the property and ultimately heading all the way across the Tablelands to the Wentworth Falls themselves on the south side of the escarpment. The prevailing wind in the Blue Mountains is westerly, which is, of course, worth noting when laying out a golf course. The design that Suda come up with was an outer loop followed by an inner loop to complete the nine holes, and it started off with the four holes of the outer loop would play west for the first two, then north and then east in that order, followed by the inner loop of five holes to finish. And that played in order from, they would play west for hole five, north for hole six, south for hole seven, and then holes eight and nine were east for the last two coming back home. It consisted of what we would call today five par fours, three par threes and one par five as they were playing to bogey back then so that's what the par would be equivalent of today and the total par equivalent today would would equal 34 so that's not too bad now there were no dog legs in the design and to be honest it was kind of crammed in really and that's what you heard suitor talk about at the beginning of his article that it was it was on the smaller size not big enough for a championship course but certainly a holiday course as it were and not much spare land was left over from the layout he used all of the land that was available pretty much. Now, the green complexes were quite simple by today's standards, although the one feature that I found that Souter used the most was probably was the steep slopes on the putting surfaces. And I believe that the nine greens that were originally built, six of them are in use today. They are characterized with either a slope on the whole plane of the green, for example, back to front or right to left or left to right, and just that, that one slope in direction. Or they had a flattish part at the back and a steep sloping front half towards the fairway. And that was kind of the way that Souter would build the green surfaces and the, and the types of greens themselves. That's what I found that he did back then. On December 6, 1913, the Sydney Morning Herald has an article stating, reports that the links are well advanced and there is no reason why they should not be opened as arranged on anniversary day January twenty six. Now being obviously 1914 the following month and that's they're talking about is basically what we call Australia Day today. Well, doing some more reading, I found that both Pitt and McLaughlin were scheduled for the sales of their respective subdivisions on the Easter long weekend in March 1914. Reasonably timely, one might suggest. I've got absolutely no doubt that this was an end goal for these blokes to boost the sales of their subdivision on the back of the golf course opening and fanfare. So they wanted to push for a golf course, but these guys were businessmen. They owned enough land and they were doing subdivisions locally to the golf course. It's a bit what we see today, isn't it, in a lot of places? So nothing's changed in a lot of the business models. So Pitt and McLaughlin had land, were doing subdivisions to sell land, coinciding with the recent opening of the golf course so they could make money. Interesting. This was over 100 years ago. Not much has changed sometimes. Now, on February 20, 1914, a newspaper article in the Blue Mountain Echo states that work on the new golf links is progressing well and the turf on the various greens is shooting nicely. The fairways are in good trim and all the stone having been raked off and carted away. Souter visited during the week saying that he was highly satisfied with the work. So things were progressing. March 21, 1914, an annual report states that the course would be ready for play, but they were experiencing a long dry spell, which in their opinion made it impossible to continue turfing the greens. They were, however, starting to sell blocks of land along the boundary of what is today the third hole, and they were taking competitive designs for the clubhouse at this point. So things were progressing reasonably quickly. Now, in July 1914... World War I breaks out. This would have no doubt put a slowdown on the works at the golf course, and we wouldn't hear about anything more until nearly 12 months passes by. The war really did have an effect. February 28, 1915. It was reported in the club's second annual report that plenty of work has now been done to the golf course due to good summer weather, The Greens were receiving good treatment under the personal supervision of a practical player, Mr. Black. Black was the first keeper of the Greens at Wentworth Falls Golf Club and also the first person engaged to man the shop for golfers. The club also purchased a horse and dray to keep up the pace of completing the final works of the course and the club also had 62 head of sheep to graze over the play areas to keep the grass short. Antique mower back then, they were using sheep. This was not uncommon for places of history. Um, Old golf courses, historical golf courses back then, sheep were used to just graze and keep the grass down. That was what they did. Now, Easter long weekend in 1915 was a big deal for Wentworth Falls Golf Club. The foundation stone was being laid as the clubhouse construction had commenced and the golf course was finally opened. And to celebrate that, there was a professionals exhibition match played on the barely ready but finally open golf course by none other than Dan Souter, who was a professional at Manly Golf Club, Joe Kirkwood, who was a professional at Manly Golf Club, Charlie Campbell, the professional at Lura Golf Club, and Fred Popplewell, the professional at the Australian Golf Club. It was a 36-hole team match play with the two Manly pros of Souter and Kirkwood versing the pros of Campbell and Popperwell. Suda and Kirkwood would be victors of the day, winning by just five strokes. These four were some of the best players in Australia at the time. These are some big names, guys, big names. Now I'm going to run through just how big they were and just who they were. So Suda, as we know, was winner of the Australian Amateur in 1903 and then won all manner of Aussie major events, including the Australian Open, the PGA, etc. Joe Kirkwood, if you're not sure who Joe was. It should be noted in 1915 that Joe was 18 years old, okay? Now, Joe would take Australian golf and show the world that we were great at the game. He went off to Europe in time and the USA in the early 1920s to compete in but not before winning both the Australian Open and New Zealand Opens in 1920 and also competed at all of the majors, being the Masters, the PGA Championship, the US Open and the Open Championship. He also, so this guy could play golf, and that was in in his early part of his career, um, that he was at at the opening of Wembley Falls. He also became one of the biggest exhibition golfers traveling the world doing trick shot shows, exhibition matches, not only live, but also in time on television when television became popular. So Joe Kirkwood was a big name as well. Souter was a big name. Charlie Campbell. Charlie Campbell would go on to win the Australian Open in 1922 and the Australian Professional Tournament, which was the uh, which was the Australian PGA twice. So he was a big name and he was the professional at Lura Golf Club. Fred Popperwell won the 1925 Australian Open and competed in the 1926 Open Championship, so he was big as well. These four guys were at the opening of Wentworth Falls Golf Club in 1915 for the first exhibition match. That's monumental. These are the biggest names in golf in the early 1900s. And they were there at the opening of Wentworth Falls playing in an exhibition match. So Souter had some pull. He could draw draw a group of people together, some big names, and help with the opening. Big deal. Just saying. On February 19, 1916, the Sydney Morning Herald reported that Wentworth Falls Golf Club had officially opened, including their new clubhouse, which was two storeys and was fully residential. It could accommodate nearly fifty visitors. It also stated that the course had reticulated water supplied from a well, and the greens were sown with cooch grass and were looking well. That's that's pretty good. Now cooch for back then for greens in the Blue Mountains, we'd probably look at that and go, That's weird. It's very odd. But I'm guessing I'm guessing that they probably did that because there was Difficulties with water supply. Even though I said they had reticulated water, they probably were working on the fact that that it was going to be the tougher variety of grass potentially on the greens, and it was able to deal with the heat in summertime and and probably not having an abundance of water. But they had water, just not enough water, maybe, not sure. But I, I my guess is that's why cooch was put down on the greens to deal a little bit better with a with a little bit less water than you would ultimately have potentially somewhere, being closer to the city, for example. Remember, this was a long way from Sydney. Now, accommodation had been made for a professional clubmaker at the club, as the article goes on to say, and two lawn tennis courts were being built and plans were in the making for a bowling green. They were really, really looking to make Wentworth Falls a big country club, in my opinion. This is the sort of stuff of Royal Sydney happening in the Blue Mountains went Wentworth Falls, no less. So this they, there, were, there were big grand plans here. This was going to be something huge. And indeed, they'd already created something huge. Now it was just about telling the world, or certainly telling Sydney anyway. November 29, 1916, the referee in Sydney reported that the course had been closed by the directors of the club so that the fairway grasses could have more time to be established. The report says that, and I quote, golfers can rest assured that nothing is being overlooked to make the course the best outside Sydney, end quote. The seed planted on the fairways consisted of six different kinds with cooch as the principle and in time would be of splendid order, as they put it, as the soil is very good for grass. It goes on to talk about the fact that both Lura and Wentworth Falls are close together, which will work in their favour and not a disadvantage in attracting golfers to the region because they will have two courses to play, isn't that what we see? The bandons of the world, the barn bugles of the world. You know, it's, it's it's about having more choice, more options. You go away and play for a period of time and you enjoy a couple of different places to play. They were doing it back then here in the Blue Mountains. Interesting. Reported on the 21st of March in 1917, so we've gone another five months, and this is in the Sydney Morning Herald again, on April 14 and fifteen. Carnegie Clark from Royal Sydney, who was a professional at Royal Sydney, Dan Suter, the professional from Manly, Fred Popperwell, the professional from The Australian in Sydney, and Charlie Campbell, the professional from Lura, were to play an exhibition match at Wentworth Falls and all proceeds would go to the War Chest Fund. This fund, under the banner of the Australian Comforts Fund, was basically a charity fund where civilians could donate money that would go towards the war efforts supporting the soldiers with things like special clothing and food services and, and also other charities like the Red Cross. So it was a bit of a deal. Have it at Wentworth Falls. Wentworth Falls was really on the map in golf. It was, it was, a, it was one of the best places to play golf, to put exhibition matches on. They really were driving... And this is no doubt from the background, this is from R.M. Pitt, this is from McLaughlin, to really drive eyes, people, get professionals there. Let's get more people there. Let's, let's build this golf club and let's build the popularity of this place. Big deal. That was 1917. The club had been open for only a couple of years. In 1918, we saw John McLaughlin pass away. And his son would then start to be involved in the club. Now reported on the 2nd of May 1919, Ernest Banks, who was specially brought out by Sir Robert Lucas Tooth to lay out and supervise the construction of the Kamaruka course, has been appointed professional and secretary to the Wentworth Falls Golf Club. The course is beautifully laid out, but a resident professional was badly needed. Nobody should be able to supervise the course better than Banks, who is also an excellent club maker. I judge from some of the work I have seen of his, which is very good indeed. And reported on the 2nd of January 1920, Ernest Banks, who has had a very large experience in the best methods of course architecture and greenkeeping, has been attached to the club for some time, during which he has made very marked improvements. The second green has been built up, which it badly needed. So there's a little bit of architectural stuff happening, a little bit of influence Happening at Wentworth Falls from the resident professional and Banks, you can go back to episode twenty in the back catalogue of the Golf and Greenkeeper podcast to find out. And I did an Aussie golf history segment on Ernest Banks, so you can hear about his story. But he was being involved and in doing some work architecturally for the golf course. Wanted to do a little bit of improvements. Now Easter 1920, another exhibition match was held at Wentworth Falls Golf Club, but this time it was between Tom Howard and Ernest Banks. And Eric Appley and Charlie Campbell. Now, Howard and Appley were considered at the time the leading amateurs of New South Wales. They would both go on to become two great golfers in Australian history, and also both would do design work on golf courses as well. Appley certainly much more famous than Howard in this regard. Tom Howard, that is. So, we're having these events, multiple events of some of the biggest names in Australian golf at Wentworth Falls. How bizarre! How intriguing, how interesting. I I still can't believe it. The more I dig up this stuff, the more I was researching it, the more the bigger the names were that came out. May 1920, a professional competition was held at Wentworth Falls Golf Club, which was battled out between a stack of the best pros in the state and indeed the country. Ernest Banks and Charlie Campbell, of course, Dan Souter, all of the Clark brothers, Carnegie, Walter and Reg, Fred Popperwell, Arthur East of Concord. I mean, the names, the list just goes on. You go back into the history... Of Australian golf in in the Australian Opens and the PGA's, you're going to see all of these names here. They are playing at Wentworth Falls. This is insane. The event that day in 1920 was won by Charlie Campbell, and the runner-up was Dan Suter. Now, following the event was a long drive competition. Oh, God forbid, long drive. Don't talk about long drive comps and Bryson, Bryson DeChambeau. We, we all can't can't stand talking about that, can we? Too much to take on. Well, they did it back then. This is 1920, is 102 years ago. 102 years ago, a long drive comp was held after the event, and it was won by Ernest Banks, the Pommy. The Pommy won it over over <laughs> over the resident Aussies and the Scots that had come here as well. So there was probably a little bit of bragging rights around that one. So a little bit of fun had uh, at Wilmer Falls. I, I just. Digging all this up, I cannot begin to tell you how blown away by the names of these people that are up in the Blue Mountains playing and competing, whether it be exhibition matches, competitions, professional comps, whatever, they're at Wentworth Falls Golf Club. Just mind-blowing. On the 23rd of November in 1920, Ernest Banks and his wife, Lily, had left Australia to manage a hotel in Rabaul in PNG, Papua New Guinea, it was reported on December 24 that they will be much missed at the club and the club wishes them well in their new home. So they clearly had an impact on the club, Ernest Banks and his wife. Now, I want to give you a bit of an idea of some of the people that were involved. We've talked about RM Pitt and John McLaughlin and John Charles Matthew C, the, the son of the Premier and James Wall, the, the President of the Council. There are other people involved in the club. In the late 1920s, the club had an event called the Coot Shield, which was an inter-club event played every year between some of the clubs in the Blue Mountains. The Coote Shield was sponsored by Mr. Coote, obviously, family name, Mr. Coote. Now, Coote, Mr. Coote, just happened to be a Blue Mountains local and one half of the original founders of the Angus and Coote jewellers, which I'm sure we've all heard of in Australia. It's a, it's a large jewellery chain in Australia. Um, so there you go. He was a local in the mountains, sponsored events in 1920 down at Wilmer Falls. Sure, no worries. Thanks, Coot. Cheers, mate. Uh, Just another one of the, the influential people involved in the club. I'm just trying to build. I was trying to get my head around just how big this golf club was and the people that were involved. It's monumental. To get... Half of the field of professionals from the Australian Men's Open to play in an exhibition match or just a professional event at Wentworth Falls is 100 kilometres from Sydney. That takes a lot of effort. People don't just do that by chance. So they were going around, they were competing, they were earning money. That was a big deal. So during the 1920s, the club went about acquiring more land with the goal of extending the course to a full 18-hole layout, of which... For the new holes, the club would seek the services of Dan Souter again, this time in 1923. They purchased two more blocks of land further to the west and southwest than their original home block, if you like to call it that way, and these blocks were dissected by roads. In 1929, the Great Depression would hit, and this again would put a big slowdown on the new work that had been started, a bit like what World War One did originally building the golf course. So building the new holes for the expansion of the course to make it 18 holes really took a backward step as the Great Depression came in. And we fast forward five years to 1934, and that's when the completion would occur for the 18-hole layout. So finally, they had built. 18 holes, a total of 18 holes under Suter's design for the expansion of the golf course. So from when he designed it in 1923 to 1934, it, re- it was 10 years. Long time. But the depression put a slowdown and added probably five more years. So Dan's new 18-hole layout that he designed was routed as follows. It started still on what was the first and then the second, as it has always been on that, on that front paddock, the eastern paddock. But then it would cross a road and you'd go up to what is now the middle paddock and still continue to play west. So west would be the first, the second and the third holes in succession heading straight west. And then you would turn a corner and it would basically, the fourth would then run south and you'd head out towards the new back paddock. And it would be a counterclockwise loop around that paddock itself. And you'd get to a par 4, then a par 5. 8 and 9 were two par 3s back-to-back. And then 10 and 11 were short par 4s. And then you would that would be on the middle paddock. Then you would come back heading then east... And you would jump back into what was the original nine holes. And you would then do the rest of that, the original nine hole paddock, which was that outer and inner loop of holes to get back to the clubhouse to finish. So it was like a an oddly shaped figure eight, if that's a good way of saying it. They would cross over. You would cross over and change directions. So it was uh, it was basically an out and in golf course. So you would go out and then you would come back. And that's how it was. So it was no no midway point of, of return to the clubhouse. And that totaled a past 68 18-hole golf course for Wentworth Falls Golf Club. So 1934, the completion of the 18-hole layout, a life-size portrait of RM was donated by the fellow directors of the club to the golf club itself in honour of RM himself and all the work he had done building the great club that it had become at Wentworth Falls. Bit of a deal. Big full-size portrait hanging up on the wall. We see a lot of historical pictures and photographs. And pay you going to Manly Golf Club. It's got so much history. It's a beautiful old clubhouse. You go into Royal Sydney, beautiful clubhouse. It's got a lot of history. They've got a lot of history pieces throughout. This is in Sydney I'm talking about because I know Sydney more than, more than other parts of the country. Wentworth Falls was doing the same thing back in the early 1900s, up to, where are we? 1934. Full-size portrait of RM because of we want to honour him because of everything that he's done for the preceding 20-something years from when it began. Big deal. It would take, in total, 10 years, like I said, from when they started to build the new nine holes until 1935. And the Sydney Morning Herald reported that the club had been carrying out considerable work to the course and there were now 18 holes at Wentworth Falls Golf Club. The club had also purchased a house on the opposite corner of the club and converted it into a bachelor's quarters for more accommodation. This would give the golf club accommodation for nearly 70 visitors to stay at the course. The original clubhouse was a two-story one. You heard me mention it before. It could, it could house 50 people. They bought the house across the road turns it into a bachelor's quarters for more accommodation could take another 20 so you could have 70 odd people staying on site that's what they needed to have it was a remote golf course in the beautiful blue mountains away from sydney up in the sky elevated beautiful crisp cool air the health benefits that they they talked about i know and reading some of this stuff as well of being up so well, this was like a big country club They were building this massive golf course out of Sydney that you could travel to to play golf and there was another golf course up the road in Lura. and clearly it was a very beautiful region and Pitt saw something in that and he got the guys together and they pushed, they got some of the best people in the country in golf and they built, they got some of the best players in the country in golf and they they played and they showed off and they were showing off the sport as we heard earlier on, Pitt loved golf. Now, R.M. Pitt would not get to see the final part of Wentworth Falls Golf Club, being that the opening of the full 18-hole golf course, because on September 30, 1935, at the age of 86, R.M. passed away only days after falling ill. They'd finished building the 18 holes, but they weren't open for play yet. So the Sydney Morning Herald reported that it was finished and it was built. They hadn't officially grown it all in yet and had it open. It was only the year before that the club donated this life-size portrait of of him to the club in honor of what he'd done, but he didn't quite make it. passed away before it was officially opened. It wasn't until 1936 when it was announced that Wentworth Falls Golf Club had a full 18-hole golf course open for play, and in September, 1935 he passed away. So very sad. Very sad in a sense, but but he lived a good life. He lived to 86 back then. That was huge too. So sad in one sense, massive of what he'd been part of and what he'd driven to build Wentworth Falls in another sense and everything that was part of it to that point. Huge. So we get to 36, 1936 and full 18-hole golf course. Now, the golf course that's opened are the same blocks of land that are there today and that are routed over today, albeit slightly different from their routing and we'll come across that soon. The 18 holes consisted of nine par fours back then, six par threes and three par fives with a total par of 69. That's what opened up in 1936. Now, the other interesting story that I've come across and and that was that the former Lord Mayor of Sydney, William Percy McKellen, was a big supporter of Wentworth Falls Golf Club. So much so that he resided at the club for many years. He lived there. He lived there, and turns out that he had he could pull strings, being the Lord Mayor of Sydney. So he pulled some strings to help out the club with uh, with some course improvements. The original first hole, which is now the eighth, was a little bit rough and needed a little bit of attention. So he decided to arrange for a load of rubbish from Moor Park Tip to be sent to Wentworth Falls Golf Course as top dressing for the fairways. And by his own admission, short of the tins, rags, and papers he felt this type of top dressing proved to be very successful now I'm not sure what the metrics were back then to measure the success of top dressing fairways with loads of rubbish but I'm wondering if there might have been an ulterior motive there <laughs> I, I can't I can't work that one out I don't know where he would have thought that that was helpful but turns out he did and uh, there clearly was some cleaning up afterwards of the uh, the other parts of the the top dressing that they didn't need on the fairways. <laughs> so there you go. Some of the things they used to do back then. Now, on the 30th of November 1937, would see the loss of Dan Souter to the Australian golf world after he passed away in a Sydney hospital after contracting an infection after being admitted for appendicitis. So the golf club loses RM Pitt in 1935 and then in 1937, two years later, Dan Souter passes away. Now, Dan Suter, he was massive in Australian golf, huge. And RM Pitt was massive in Wentworth Falls golf and Blue Mountains golf. In two years, Wentworth Falls has lost these two key people that were part of their history, creating something special. Interesting times ahead, no doubt, but two key figures gone. Now, a total of 33 years of good golf and fun would be had at Wentworth Falls Golf Club from when the original nine-hole course opened in 1915 until April 17, 1948. Now, why is that date significant? Well, on April 17, 1948, there was a large fire in the clubhouse and the building was completely engulfed in flames, the massive two-storey clubhouse that was at Wentworth Falls. Now, as reported in the Canberra Times... And if it reached Canberra, clearly it was big news. And the the heading for the article was, Golf Clubhouse gutted by fire. Twenty guests and two staff had a narrow escape when they fled from Wentworth Falls Golf Clubhouse, which was gutted by fire early this morning. The damage is estimated to be between 15,000 and 20,000 pounds. Guests and servants lost most of their possessions. Two maids were almost suffocated in their rooms before escaping through a first-floor window after finding the staircase had collapsed. Guests woke to find their rooms filled with smoke and walls crashing around them. Big deal. This big clubhouse that could house 50 residents, two storeys, burnt to the ground. Gone. And ultimately, this would mark a turning point in the history for the club. Just about everything was lost from the club. And this is the reason why so much, not, not quite all, but so much of what you've heard so far has not been heard by anyone at all. Those that know these stories have long since passed away. So a lot of the stories, a lot of what I've dug up there in the names, the events, the golf events aren't in the history book of Wentworth Falls. So a lot of what you've heard then no one's heard before. You can't find any history. There's no old trophies of one more falls from back in the 30s. I can't imagine some of this. That would have been really cool to see. Everything was gone in this fire. So up at the golf club now, there's none of that stuff. It doesn't exist. It literally wiped its history. Everything was lost, records, the whole lot, gone, quite literally wiped from history. I had to do a lot of digging to find a lot of that information out. And as you know, it's taken me 18 months to put all this together. And one of the other things, sadly, that was lost in the fire was that portrait of R.M. Pitt that was donated to the club, that hung proudly in the club to remember all that he'd done for the golf club. It was gone too. That's why there's no real talk about R.M. Pitt. Robert Matcham Pitt, as his full name was, in Wentworth Falls. they got no idea who he was. Yeah, you read this, the history book of Wentworth Falls, the centenary history book. There's a few mentions about him, a couple of photos and things, but not to the extent that we understand. I did a lot of research into him as well to just realize how much of a golfer he was. He had his own golf course at Coora. But that fire wiped Wentworth Falls Golf Club's history from Australia and indeed from golf in Australia. And it was a turning point. Fifteen to twenty thousand pounds was the estimated cost of the damage. No more R.M. Pitt. No more Dan Souter. No more John McLaughlin. John Charles Matthew C. You know all these guys. James Wall. They were they were long gone. Passed away. No one to put the passion and money into it or energy again. So what happened? Well, this forced an extremely difficult time onto the club in the preceding years as they were poorly insured. So there's no one with connections, wealth, whatever you want to call it, involved in the club at the level that there was when it began. And they weren't insured very well at all, which is often you hear about back in the, the, uh, the early 1900s, even into the mid-1900s. A lot of people weren't insured appropriately. Once it was gone, it was gone. And it nearly brought the golf club to its knees financially as a club as a whole. They had no clubhouse and had effectively lost everything. Everything except the bachelor's quarters across the road that I mentioned there before. And that was to become a temporary clubhouse for the golf club. Untouched across the road. Now temporary ended up being for the next 30 years. That's how big a hole they were in. So far in the club's 30-odd-year history to the 1948 fire, you can see that so much of its patronage was from people travelling up and staying at the club to play golf. I mean, there was enough locals that were members and were playing golf at the club, but a very high number were visitors to the club from Sydney. It was a destination. And with a few courses to travel away to in a place like the Blue Mountains and with the influential connections of the club members it became a great golf destination. Take the accommodation away and the the ability to stay there became difficult at best. It was clearly too much for people to do. If you can't stay on site, and it was far from a short drive like it is today, you won't go up there. So much so that the next two to three years after the fire saw almost no visitors play golf from outside the Blue Mountains. Now that's hard hitting. 1950, two years on from the fire, a Mr. Ron Elliott takes on the role as the fifth club professional since opening. And I got this from the club's history book. And a point of note was that Ron was a keen gardener. In what I can only describe now as a lasting tribute to the late Mr. R.M. Pitt, the founding father of Wentworth Falls Golf Club, And and don't forget, everything's been lost in that club fire. But this happened. Ron planted some daffodil bulbs adjacent to the creek of the old 17th hole. Those daffodil bulbs are still blossoming in spring today. And that hole is now the seventh hole near the creek that dissects the fairway at about 130 metres from the green. I was trying to find this information out, and now I have. This took some research. Those daffodil bulbs that the professional at the time, Ron Elliott, planted, were taken from the Blue Mountains Grammar School, and by chance, those daffodils from the Grammar School are the remaining bulbs from R.M. Pitt's daffodil farm that he had at his old Kura property. Now, Kura property was sold in time after R.M. passed away and kids didn't want it passed on, and eventually... The private school bought it, turned it into the Blue Mountains Grammar School. So Ron gets the bulbs from the school, which are the remaining daffodils from RM's farm, and plants them near the creek, and they're still blossoming there today. A lasting and fitting tribute to RM Pitt, which is still in the ground there, coming out every spring. No one knows that at all, but they do now. No one knows that those daffodil bulbs that pop up every spring by the 7th Creek of Wentworth Falls are those very bulbs from Pitt's farm, his flower farm, that he grew. They might have lost the portrait in the clubhouse fire, but every spring when the daffodils pop up down on the 7th by the creek, I suppose that's a little bit of R.M. Pitt sticking his head up and saying, I'm still here, guys. I'm still part of this property. I think that's an incredible lasting trip. It's only by accident too, by the way. It took me a while to work all that out. And as far as I'm concerned, for the club's history, those bulbs should be sacred because that's, the, that's all that's left as a throwback to RM, who so long ago started that golf club, and put so much into it. And it's only that I know about these bulbs because I used to snip along that area where, they, where they're planted. We used to see the bulbs pop up all the time, every spring or late winter. They'll pop up every year. We go down there and whippersnip around them, whippersnip through them when they'll finish flowering just to keep the grass short. But every year, now I know the story of the bulbs and it's a lasting tribute to RM. And it's fitting as well, if I'm going to say so, that they're on the ground. They're part of the golf course. They're not a picture up in the clubhouse. Now that's great and it's sad that they lost that one in the fire. But it's, it's part of the golf course, the ever-changing seasons of the Blue Mountains. Those daffodils will pop up and finish their spent flowers and disappear as the cycles throughout the year. And now that the club knows this, people will have heard this from the club. They know that those bulbs are RMs. And I think that's a fitting tribute to RM and I'm glad I found that bit out too by the way 1951 saw the club's name voted to be changed to Wentworth Falls Country Club cuz previously you heard me say it was Wentworth Falls Golf Club now by the mid 1960s the things were changing now the world was was changing australia had changed but things were changing the history page of RM and all of those wonderful golfers that played as part of the the, the the growing of the club if you like the, the biggest names in golf dance Souter and architecture and so on that page has been turned now this is a very different one with Falls we move into the 60s so once that fire happened turn the page we move to the 60s now by the mid 1960s the club had started to do some minor changes to the golf course. I'm going to go through some of these little things along the way about the course because this is very much about the golf course and and I know that it's hard to get this across as a listener about how the changes of the golf course were if you've never been there but it's like reading a book. I'm going to hope that I can paint a picture well enough for you. By the mid-60s, the club had started to do some minor changes to the course. The 10th and 11th holes would go from being two short par 4s, they were only 245, Yards and 241 yards respectively. So they were short par fours. It's about, that's only in today's numbers, it's only about 220 metres, right? So they would change to two long par threes and they move the tees a little bit forward. Now this gave the golf course a total of eight par threes, four of which were in succession, being eight, nine, ten, and eleven. And that would obviously bring the par down from 68 to 66. Interesting play by the golf club. Clearly technology was starting to make an impact into how the course was played, and I somehow doubt that a par 66 would have been considered challenging enough back then. So balls were going further, clubs were hitting them further. The par fours were not really about no, par three and a halves, I suppose. And, and with some clever architecture, they probably could have been good short par 4s, but they didn't. Instead, the club, from all accounts and everything that I've looked into, this is a change they made themselves, didn't get any architects in. They dropped the holes to par 3s, dropped the par from 68 to 66. Now also, new courses were popping up all over the place in and around Sydney, and now the mountains seem slightly less inviting as a holiday destination like they once were 40 years earlier. And were catering more and more for the local residents that permanently lived up there than for travelling golfers. It was a bit of a different time. Different clientele for the club. Dealing more with members rather than traveling visitors, people who played the Royal Sydney's of the world, the New South Wales golf clubs of the world, the Manly's of the world. You know, these are all connected back then in the early 1900s when Wentworth Falls was built by the pros that were coming up and playing. Exhibition matches, people coming up to see them. Let's go and play Wentworth Falls. I just watched an event the other day with Popper World, Kirkwood, Suter and, you know, Campbell and, and Appley and Howard and, Jesus, bloody hell, talk, talk about the names. Let's go and play Wentworth Falls. All that's been gone and forgotten technologies change the way they're playing golf by the 60s so changed the course to suit but I don't know that they did it for the better because it looked like they were just not really getting the right people involved in the club again. I don't hear about any new, any names here from architecture circles to deal with the club, changing nature of golf they did it on their own to their detriment in my opinion at the time. 1966 saw the implementation of an irrigation system and construction of a dam for water storage. Now this dam is the one that's on the 10th hole today and it took 12 months for the irrigation system to be completed and commissioned back in the mid-60s. So here was a step forward now we're going towards conditioning. For better or worse, it's part of the expectation of golf courses. So the club had taken this step. 1966 was also a year where a young seven-year-old girl by the name of Edwina Kennedy would join the golf club as a junior. Now Edwina Kennedy would go on to become one of Australia's best female amateur golfers throughout her golfing career. And it all began with her visiting and staying with her grandmother who lived on what is now the third hole all those years ago back in 1966. Now a bit of Edwina's golfing prowess to run through with you. In 1973... At the ripe old age of 14, Edwina won the Wentworth Falls Country Club Mixed Foursomes Championships. 14 years old, won a club championships. (laughs) I don't care who you are. That is impressive. But it was a club event. Big wow in itself, really, though. Two years later, in 1975, Edwina would win her first national title the Australian foursomes. And she also won the Australian junior title, which she would win for four more consecutive years. Clearly, Edwina knew how to play golf. Very talented, very talented golfer. In 1978, Edwina became the first and is still the only Australian to win the British Women's Amateur Championships which was played at Knott's Golf Club in England. And in the same year, was a member of the first Australian team to win the Women's World Amateur Team Championship. I didn't know anything about this stuff. She was one of the best we've ever had. <laughs> and she, was, she started her golfing career went to a Falls Country Club. I'm reading this and I'm just like, this is another level of amazement for me, right? That's why I wanted to talk about this story. Every time I turned a corner, there was something impressive about the history of Wentworth Falls and the people that had come through it. The people that were there, the people that were involved. Now we're in the mid-60s, Edwina comes along. She becomes one of our best ever female golfers. So 1978 was a massive year. Edwina would go on to win many other titles, some of which include, and I'll just rack through them because there's so many, can't go through them all, but I'll rack through a number of them. New South Wales Amateur Championship, the Australian Amateur Championship, New Zealand Amateur Championship. These are the ones that she, she won. The Canadian Amateur Championship. There's a host of others. And she's just kicking ass. In 1985, Edwina was awarded the Medal of the Order of Australia. Massive honours. Massive honours. That's the OAM. If you ever hear OAM, it's for it's a Medal of the Order of Australia. An incredibly high honour for, for our country. And that's for, for what she'd done in sport. And in 1993, she was inducted into the Sport Australia Hall of Fame, where she stands alongside some of our greatest ever golfers, such as Jan Stevenson, Kel Nagel, Peter Thompson, Jim Ferrier and Greg Norman, to name just a few. And she began her career at Wentworth Falls at the age of seven. Now that's a hell of a career, if you ask me. Had no idea. Product of Wentworth Falls. There you go. Just another piece in the history of the golf club. These are these these names are mind blowing. <laughs> I just I couldn't get enough. I'm. You can imagine me researching all of this. So this is some of this stuff is in the history of the centenary book of Wentworth Falls. And I'm reading it and I'm going, Edwina Kennedy, holy shit, look at what she's done. But we don't talk about it so much anymore. And I get that it's history. It's not for everyone. But on top of the early history of Wentworth Falls, which not many people, not even in the club, even know about. And like I said to you, most of what I found, no one even knows. It's long since been lost. So we ca- so that's Edwina. That's who Edwina is. She was a product of Wentworth Falls. Unreal. Now, the late 1960s saw a few more minor changes to the golf course itself. There was another dam added to the water supply of the golf course, and this was done by damming the creek, the original creek that we talked about that I mentioned earlier on that Dan Souter talked about. They dammed that, and uh, that's now part of the front paddock of the golf course. They dammed that between holes 13, 14, and 15 back then as they were, which today are holes 3, 4, and 5. Now, the dam space chewed out into the location of the then 14th green, which ended up having to be moved to the south. And that created a slight dogleg in the par four instead of the straight par four that it used to be. And that's how Suter designed As I mentioned, he designed the the golf course with no, no doglegs. There was no loss of space. He really did cram everything in to that front paddock, um, which was the nine-hole golf course as it was back then. The 17th hole was also lengthened by moving the green further back to the east, halfway up the hill. So it was just a slightly longer par four. And this to me wasn't a good move as it completely removed the creek out of the challenge of the hole that used to lay right up in front of the green. So the old 17th, as it were back then, was a short-ish par four, but it had a creek. This this creek that was the feature of the golf course, and that creek ran right across in front of the green. So you could hit a ball as about two hundred yards, and then you would have a shot of maybe eighty yards. Not even. But you had a creek right in front of the green. So you really had to be on. And it was a great little penultimate hole, effectively, for, for the golf course back then. And and it had no bunkers, but that was that was what it had. It didn't need anything else. It had this wonderful little hazard right up against the green. Fantastic. And in all their wisdom in the late 60s, they decided to move the green further away from that and just take the whole creek right out of play. Didn't have anything to do with anything from that point on. And indeed, it st- still doesn't really today, which is a shame because the original short par four was an, an absolute ripper of a golf hole. So they'd taken it out. They moved the green, it, it removed the, the challenge from the hole. It made the hole longer. And this is this is the funny part about this period of technology that I'm finding. They made the short par 4s, long par 3s, and they made this short par 4, a long, slightly longer par 4, made it into a non-event. It was a much bigger challenge as a shorter hole. See if you can get your head around that, people, because most people will tell you that contrary to that, except for the good commentators. Now, like I said, I didn't think this was a good a good change. Clearly, this was probably just a meterage grab for the club and the golf course as the course was quite short. So I'm guessing that that was what they were grabbing at back then because it was easy to do and, and um, you know, let's get some meters as we can. Ill-advised, like I said, ill-advised. We moved to the early 1970s, which saw another young member of the club, a future sports star, but not in golf. You all probably know him as one of the best rugby union players to ever play for Australia. He was a former Australian Wallabies captain, and I'm talking about Nick Farr-Jones, who used to frequent the golf course. Now, I managed to get in touch with Nick, who was very generous with his time on the phone with me when I was researching for this podcast, and I thank Nick for his time. Nick used to visit Wentworth Falls with his family, as his grandparents' house was only a few doors up the road from the clubhouse. Nick and his brothers would often kick the footy around with a few other junior golfers at the time at the club. I believe it was near the car park area of the, of the old clubhouse is where they used to sort of kick the footy around and play a bit of footy. And I will mention the other guys as they were most helpful also in researching for this podcast. And that, that is Al Horrocks, whose parents were heavily involved with the club and who himself would eventually become a greenkeeper of the golf course before moving on to be superintendent at Dubbo Golf Club for a very long time. And the other one that was a great deal of help as well in researching this was Peter Hansen, and and his brothers were the guys playing footy. Peter's father was Ken Hansen, who was instrumental at the club, and I will be talking about him very soon. But all these young kids would play some footy at the golf club. Now, it sounds like it was a bit of a, a bit of the place to be, which I'm not sure you would hear about these types of things these days at all, at any golf club, I might add. Nick used to play quite a bit of golf at the club, and he told me of his very fond memories playing the golf course when he and his family would visit. Nick said he still has a soft spot for the township of Wentworth Falls and, of course, for the golf course itself. And I will have to be honest, when I heard Nick Farr-Jones tell me of his memories of the golf course... It kind of made me think a little more about what Wentworth Falls Country Club meant to me and researching for this podcast, just how widely regarded and visited it was in its early days. And like I said, you, you know, you hear Nick Farr-Jones growing up playing at Wentworth Falls. I mean, obviously, no one probably knew back then that he was going to become one of the greatest players to ever pull on the golden jersey for for the Australian Rugby Union team for the Wallabies, but... It was really, really nice for Nick to give me his time on the phone and just to tell me about his memories of of playing golf up there. He used to really enjoy the golf course. So I had to add that one in because it's just, it's another person that's been involved with the club throughout its history. And I think that's important. Shows you what the club was. Just Unreal. The 1970s was also somewhat of a rebirth for Wentworth Falls Country Club and, and finally seeing it rise from the ashes of the clubhouse burning down all those years ago back in 1948. This was also a time when a few key people were involved with the club, being that of Ken Hanson, who was a secretary manager, Arthur Bent and Bruce Hutchinson. The club and course was about to change dramatically. A course master plan was developed by famed Sydney golfer and prolific course architect, Al Howard, but only after a location for the new clubhouse was decided upon. Now, Al Howard was the son of Tom Howard. You heard me mention Tom before. Design-wise, Al has probably worked on more golf courses in Australia than any other architect from what I can gather. I've been doing a bit of reading and I just, he's, not, he's, he's just done so many. Certainly a list of New South Wales courses that he's completed design work on More than anyone I've ever seen before. It's just phenomenal, and these aren't from brand new builds from scratch. These are, you know, adjusting the golf courses, redesigning golf courses, redesigning golf holes. You know, lots of lots of little works, also some big works around, um, because he redesigned a lot of this course here at Wentworth Falls. But he has done so much work; it's insane. And, And during this period in the '70s and '80s, Al Howard was one of the biggest names. In uh, an Australian golf course architecture, just done so much work, so much work. Wentworth Falls Country Club was looking into the future with the consideration of building a new clubhouse. Finally, they finally it only taken thirty odd years, but where to build it? Well, a new location which would ultimately require the golf course routing to be changed and holes modified. Ken Hanson was instrumental in finding the appropriate location for the new clubhouse as he and captain at the time, Bruce Hutchinson, talked about changing the course routing to try and get a two loops of nine layout. And they were talking about this during a round of golf, the story goes from Ken. And I thank Peter Hansen for this story as well and, and the information that comes from this. Now, Ken recalls talking with Bruce, and I read this letter. Ken recalls talking with Bruce that he had a solution based on the clubhouse being on top of the hill, which is its present location, to the point where the story goes that the two men were up on the hill roughly where they thought the clubhouse should be and Ken climbed up a tree to get a view and see just what it would be like from an elevated clubhouse and he was right and the location was adopted by the golf club's members after they put it to a vote where, where he climbed up a tree. In the end, it was a loop of 10 holes and 8 holes. Part of the process would require the sale of the land that the original clubhouse was built upon that was now the car park and the sale of the existing clubhouse itself once the move into the new clubhouse was completed. This was a big new page to turn and in a kind of a roundabout way, it it was almost as big as starting the golf club off itself. They were rebirthing the place, ushering it into a new era. 1974 saw the new clubhouse construction begin and it was opened in 1976 by the president, Arthur Bent. Now, Arthur Bent was a valued member of the club and served in numerous boards. He was instrumental in incorporating Wentworth Falls Country Club and liquidating the old Wentworth Falls Golf and Recreation Company, the structure that they had set up. So he was he was changing it all and streamlining it all and this was all part of this new rebirth of the club. He served many positions on the board of the club all the way to becoming president in 1974, and his legacy to Wentworth Falls Country Club was the new clubhouse back then. Now, unfortunately, all this work Arthur had done, and unfortunately, Arthur Bent only got to experience what he had worked so hard for the club to build, being the new clubhouse, he only got to experience it for six months before his untimely death. And that was in the Granville train disaster. Now, the Granville train disaster is still today Australia's worst ever train accident. It occurred when the daily commuter train from Mount Victoria was on the regular trip to Sydney, when it derailed at Granville, hitting the supports of an overhead road bridge, which then collapsed onto two carriages, killing 83 people on the morning commute. They were all going to work. Arthur was one of those that died that day. Very, very sad. So he'd put a lot of work in to Wentworth Falls, building it up to a point where they could build this new clubhouse. They built it, completed, and had not long since been opened. And tragically, Arthur's in this horrific accident, train accident in Sydney, and and is killed. And it kind of brings me to the memory of R.M. Pitt, putting all that work into building the golf club all those years ago. And before the 18 holes was officially opened, he became ill and passed away. Very sad. And Arthur Bent, similar timing, very sad. Another another moment in the club's history. Now, happening concurrently with the clubhouse construction works was the course changes as per the master plan to get ready for the location of the new clubhouse. Now, the master plan, as I mentioned, that was done by Al Howard. So, there were a number of changes required to the four holes of the middle paddock, which included losing the back-to-back par threes, which I have mentioned that were 10 and 11, and rearranging them so that they would play basically up and down the hill from the new clubhouse. The back paddock also received some minor changes, which again included losing the other two back-to-back par threes, along with creating two par fives, being today's 14th and 17th holes. Now, through all of these works and changes to the club and the course was the secretary manager at the time, Ken Hanson, who I just previously mentioned. Now, Ken was a key figure in managing the dollars of the club to ensure that they were able to see everything through, which at times, and as always with big projects like this, it ran over budget. Ken managed to implement certain schemes for the golf club to save money where possible, and these would ultimately prove to be a feature of the course in years to come. One was called the RED scheme. Now, this was utilising government-funded labour to help clear the vegetation of the new hole routings on the back paddock that would make up what is now 14, 16, and 17th holes. Another scheme implemented was using the members of the club to purchase young trees and plant them between the holes to delineate the holes, and we've seen this at a number of golf courses throughout certainly Sydney and New South Wales that this was a popular theme, and this all happened in the 70s up here at Wentworth Falls. Now, one key member of the club where this was right in his wheelhouse was a guy by the name of Ib Sorensen. Now, Ib owned a local plant nursery, so supplying the plants was no problem, and Ib himself was the son of a famous Danish-Australian landscape designer called Paul Sorensen, who designed gardens throughout the Blue Mountains, the Southern Highlands, Sydney, and Canberra, including working on the gardens at the Fairfax family property in the Blue Mountains as well. So, Paul Sorensen is, fam- is famous in the Blue Mountains, like I mentioned, as a, as a landscape gardener. Lots of, uh, lots of gardens done by him around the place that are very well known. And, uh, and Ib was his son, so he, he had the green thumb. He knew exactly what he was doing well and truly. So let's get stuck into putting some plants on the golf course. Here you go. I've got no problems planting them. Now, these plantings at the course would become somewhat of a cool climate arboretum with many of the trees still remaining there today. You can still see a lot of the conifer type trees, here, the long living ones uh, that we see around the golf course in the back paddock uh, and there's lots of other trees that are throughout the course that, that were used from the members planting the plants during this time. Another scheme was regarding the grassing of the fairways on the newly constructed golf holes out in the back paddock. Now, Ken spoke with representatives from another cool climate golf club, that was Duntry League Golf Club in Orange, about their fairway turf called South African Cooch. Now, South African Cooch was considered to be one of the finest cooch grasses around and proved to be very tough through extended dry spells, whilst also still being suitable for cool climates. Canada arranged a deal that would see Wentworth Falls Country Club receive numerous bags of sprigs of South African cooch from Duntree League, which could then be planted in the fairways of the new golf holes. Much to the unknown delight of Ken's sons, Peter, and his brothers, and I mentioned Peter Hansen, who helped me out a lot with this with this research, and this is a story from Peter, much to, <laughs> much to the unknown delight of, of Peter, Ken's son, and, and Peter's brothers, along with some of the friends... They were tasked with the job of planting the sprigs by hand across the new fairways at a spacing of around one metre. So, Peter was telling me that they would, these sprigs of South Africa, and their job was to go down and just stick them in the dirt and every odd metre or so, thereabouts, every pace that they would go. And that was for the fairways in the back paddock. Uh, at Falls. So that was 13, 14, uh, 16, I don't think 15 had them really that much uh, that, was, that I knew. So this was all the fairways, but what I knew about was 13, 14, 16, 17. They were the fairways that really had a lot of dominant South African cooch in them. And if you go to Duntree League in Orange in central western New South Wales, and a number of courses have South African cooch out in the central tablelands, they have fantastic services of South African cooch on their fairways. Absolutely magnificent grass. So that was uh, Peter Hansen and his brothers. That was with, that was their job. So they basically planted the fairways out in the back paddock of the golf course. Why not get kids to do it? Kids are keen. They're young. They've got time. Keen keen into golf as well. They are members of the club and they play golf. So. Like I said, this explains why South African cooch was so prevalent on those back few holes, um, which I knew growing up and working on the golf course. All of these measures that I just went through saved the club lots of money. But this time of huge change and improvement would definitely cost a lot of money. So the new course layout was in play and is basically... Everything that's in place today, that's in situ, what you see today is that new, all those new works they did then in the 70s is what is in in play today at Wentworth Falls Country Club. So this course was a par 70, so that upped it by four, much of an improvement on the old par 66 we knew about it could be considered again a test of golf for an era with increasing improvements to technology in golf equipment. The course consisted of three par fives, five par threes, and 10 par fours. Now from the clubhouse, the course now went, so the clubhouse is up on the hill in the middle paddock. The course now went east for the first 10 holes before returning. So it was a 10 hole loop. go out east and come back. And of those 10 holes, the new changes were the first hole, which was significantly different from the old 11th hole and included a new pondage-type dam on the outside of the slight dogleg left that the first hole became. So it was a par-4, mid-length par-4, off the hill from near the clubhouse. You played down to the fairway, and, and halfway through the fairway, it would kick left, and it had a, a small pondage dam on the outside as you went up to the to the green, which was the old 11th green. And there was the joining of the old par-4 17th and the old par-3 18th to become a new, longer par four seventh hole we see today. That was the only change to the front paddock of the original golf holes is they joined 17 and 18 to make it a long par 4 and so you went from the original 17th tee to the original 18th green and they just went straight across the creek that was there and it goes through a slight valley where the creek is and goes up. So the creek is no longer in play really unless you play a really bad shot. Um, it's 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 quite easy to get past um, and that's what they did at the front You can still make out the two old green locations of the 17th as it used to be back in the day. Now the back eight holes, so we go to the back eight. So this is 11 to 18. Now the back eight holes went south from the new clubhouse on the hill and then over into the back paddock where holes 11 through to 15, as they are numbered today, had been modified to some extent and three new holes were created being the new 16th, 17th and 18th holes. So there was quite a few changes to the course in terms of the numbering, obviously, the full changing of the layout and the routing um, in terms of the way the flow of the holes went. But the original front nine holes were still in essence the same. I just joined two of them. And the back paddock, they created these new par fives and new par fours and things. So uh, that's what you see today that's out there. That was all done through the 1970s. The next period of time from the late 70s, Through to the 80s was a time to enjoy the new areas of the club, being the new grand clubhouse and the new course layout. It was a time to allow everything to mature on the golf course. The back paddock was the biggest change, which now had beautiful trees as well that had been planted, and the South African cooch was growing in and spreading well to make silky fairways to play golf on. It it, was—it's a beautiful grass when it's amazing. The golf course could now boast to being the longest course in the Blue Mountains and the only past 70 course in the Blue Mountains. These were points to boast about as it was what was considered to be better than anything of lesser value. Frustratingly, these points are still believed to be what makes good golf by many players today and is the cause of many problems when it comes to clubs tinkering and fidgeting with their courses. From this point on, it was full steam ahead for a rejuvenated Wentworth Falls Country Club. Now, I get frustrated by those points because I hear about these changes and I'm reading and discovering about these changes and I hear them planting these plants and that might have been considered great to do at the time. But it was a bare golf course and they really had an opportunity to do something amazing. They didn't have a dance suitor and they clearly didn't seek anything more from Al Howard after his routing. So I don't know what Al could have done. I know he's done a lot of work on a lot of golf courses, but they didn't do anything more than just get a routing plan, obviously. There was none of the detail in how to create a golf course and and make a golf course a special place. And I think they missed an opportunity because it's it's you've heard that it's nice sandy soil up there. And there are pockets of heavy soil, but there's also really good pockets of sand on the golf course really open sparse vegetation that still existed on a corner of the golf course in a nice triangle pocket between 14 15 and 16 that's there today um there are pockets around there that could have been better utilized they could have literally created you could go and create something quite amazing up there uh, if it wasn't for all these these large trees that are there now which you've got zero chance of getting rid of um in my opinion and basically, that's around councils. I've worked with that council up there for over 20 years, and I know how terrible they are. And I'm going to say it, they are terrible in terms of allowing vegetation management on a large scale. Look at the difficulties of rural Sydney at the moment, for example. And I, I know I'm getting off track here, but these are the things that they could have done. You can't even do that now, but these are the things that could have been done in time, and they didn't do it at Wentworth full, So they, they, they went it alone, and in time... It's created what's there today, but it's it's what's lessened the quality of the golf course because these decisions weren't made. They didn't get the best people to do the detail. They just went and did it themselves. And that detracts, I think in time, has detracted for the, the, the ultimate results of the golf course. You'll see a beautiful golf course up there that's you know, like any other Parkland-style golf course, and that's just it. It's like any other Parkland-style golf course. And uh, and I and these this is where it came from, for Wentworth Falls it was in the 70s, and it was through some decisions that they made that they weren't experts in, and that's what I'm reading and that's what I'm discovering, and that's what they've got, so that's okay. Still a golf course ta- golf course to go and play and enjoy, but this is where it stemmed from. The 1980s had some challenges, but in general it was a time of growth for the club to a point where, from being honest, it's hard for for me to see these days that in 1988, the membership was full and had a waiting list. But lurking in the background around this time, in my opinion, was a slow change in golfers' expectations. As television coverage was becoming more frequent for the big golf events around Australia and around the world, golfers' minds were beginning to be filled with regular images of green golf courses. Technology regarding course maintenance was improving and the more affluent golf clubs we starting to install full-course irrigation systems. And green golf courses were starting to become the expectation, not just the elite expectation. And there's a big difference in that. This is when things start to change. Like I said before, they could have done things better, but they didn't seek the experts to do the detail. They left that part out. And really, like with anything, the devil's in the detail. So i continue. The late 80s and the early 90s, the club was doing very well indeed, which equaled money in the bank, and as clubs do, they like to tinker, and they wanted to continue to improve the course where they could. After all, things were great in the golf world, and now local clubs were competing against each other for being the best in the region, so we're already starting to see a change, and and that's that's my commentary from what I've read and what I've researched, but also me growing up in the region. And I know that clubs were competing against each other. Now, when you, you think about what I was talking about earlier on with Dan Souter, and he was talking about how Lura and Wentworth Falls would be complementary, there would be an overflow for each other. There was a reason to go up there and play golf because there was more places to play. Clientele has now changed. We're not talking about visitors. We're talking about locals and being members. They wanted all the pie for themselves. They were competing for a small group a group of people that live locally, who was going to be the best. We want you to come and play our course and be a member, but don't go over there. That's the wrong mentality to have, and this is what was going on. It was starting to change. This is what was happening. They were competing against each other to be the best in the region. Now, Blackheath Golf Club is a local golf course, about 20 minutes further drive up the mountains to the west, and they were consider. They're in the middle of considering Their next move for their golf course, which ended up being a major redesign of the whole layout, more or less. And some new holes were being built. So they were going through mega stuff in the mid-90s. But at Wentworth Falls, what to do with all their money? Well, they didn't know. Didn't need to change the course. They thought the course was okay. So let's rebuild some greens, some green complexes. Incidentally, this is when my family moved up to Wentworth Falls in, and when I got into golf, when I was a kid, this is how I. was the time when I first got into golf. Um, and we moved to a house that literally backed onto the 16th tee at Wentworth Falls. Now, Al Howard was again commissioned, this time in 1989, and but he was only commissioned to do one green complex, being the 13th at that time. This gave the hole an extra 50 odd meters in length, and was strengthened in design to have a two-tier green with a bunker on each side of the of the green complex. Uh, the hole was also given a much wider bending dog leg to the left it was nearly it's now nearly at right angles it's about 360 odd meters I think or something like that it's got a, a pretty solid right angle bend in it left uh, these days that was basically to protect the 17th tee because people are hitting it further now so starting to cut the corner so they had to push it out wider so that people would aim further away from the 17th tee coming back as you play the golf course um, and that was, the, that was the way they went about changing and adjusting that particular hole. Oh, the Green Complex opened the following year in 1990. Now, following that, Al Howard was again brought in to redesign the, the 11th and 17th Green Complexes. They were pretty impressive visually for the time, with two of the biggest greens on the golf course and numerous bunkers surrounding them. The, the 11th was a long par 3 off the hill from the clubhouse, down to a very big green, 450 square metres, Biggest one of the bigger ones on the golf course, I think. And, and it's got three large bunkers around it. And the 17th is a par five. was a non-event green, just a round green with nothing near it. Uh, big fairway bunker now as you approach and the bend of the dog leg. And then two big bunkers behind protecting out of bounds. Um, but a really another really big green, 450-odd square metres as well. So they're the two biggest greens on the golf course. That's what Al Howard designed in the 90s. And also at this time, the drought was really taking hold And the course, along with the east coast of Australia, was suffering. Suffering deluxe. Water was in short supply on the course, with dams at critically low levels, and conditioning was becoming a much-talked-about factor when playing the golf course. We get to the mid-90s, into 1994. Bushfires ravaged the Blue Mountains in 1994, leaving a devastating memory to those that lived through it and deterring the many thousands that visited regularly from visiting again. Now, I lived through that it was devastating to the area. Some places were much harder hit than others, but it's a blanket cast. The Blue Mountains ravaged by fire. No one goes back. We've seen it modern times in different areas. Recently talking to Pat Wilson from Pambula Marimbula Golf Club. This is what happens to people's perception. That's what happened in the 90s in the Blue Mountains. Now, Wentworth Falls Country Club was starting to hurt with less players and visitors coming to the golf course. And it wasn't being presented up to an expectation by golfers. It wasn't being presented to a level that was considered adequate. Now, Blackheath, on the other hand, that course that I mentioned is not far away, is the only golf course in the Blue Mountains with an abundant water supply and full-course irrigation system. Now, I wonder, thinking back and looking through this, this history path, had Wentworth Falls Country Club missed the mark and not considered securing the water supply and improving their water infrastructure as we know it today, And instead, they spent the money rebuilding some of these parts of the not-so-old golf course, you know, because they rebuilt some of the greens that weren't so long ago from the 60s when the the routing had changed into the early 70s. It had only been 20-odd years. So I'm not sure, again, did they make the wrong decision there? Should they have been working on securing water supply? Because in turn, that's what they needed, along with people's expectations to a certain extent. Now, by now, people were changing within the club and socially. Golf clubs were having to try harder to remain relevant. Was the old golf club model being left behind as society was perhaps starting to shift? Now, all these thoughts are going through my head looking back at history. Nevertheless, the financial belts tightened up and a new course of action was being implemented at Wentworth Falls. This was when I started working on the golf course as a casual groundsman and and my dad was actually involved on the, in the club, on the board. Now, Dad became part of the club at that time. He was chairman of the Greens Committee. Things were very, very tight in an effort to gain some financial control back. Now, the 1990s also saw something new, or lots of things new, in fact, and, and that was new golf courses. Now, there was a lot of competition coming. This was essentially the Asian money boom of golf course construction in Australia, namely Japanese money. New courses in Sydney, New South Wales, and in fact, all over the country were being built. Was this great for golf and too much competition for Wentworth Falls at the same time? Courses in Sydney included Terry Hills, done by Watson and Marsh, Riverside Oaks, just before the nineties was done by Sterling and Hodson. Macquarie Links come out, Nelson Hayworth. Camden Lakeside was done by Thompson Woolwich Parrot. Cypress Lakes was now open, done by Steve Smyers. Horizons up at Port Stevens was done by Watson Marsh. Bonville was done as well by Sterling and, and Terry Watson. Tallwoods was out, done by Hurdson and Fry. Mount Broughton was done down the Southern Highlands by Frank Phillips and Billy Dunk. I mean, these are big courses that all opened in the 90s, except for Riverside, which I mentioned, which opened in 1989. Lots of shiny, big new golf courses with lots of reasons to try them out. Reasons to travel and play them. Again, competition for Wentworth Falls and the Blue Mountains in general. So these were big courses, big names, big architects attached to them. Lots and lots of promotion and they were also close: Terry Hills was in the northern beaches of Sydney, Riverside Oaks was in the western suburbs of Sydney, Macquarie Links in the southwestern suburbs of Sydney, Camden Lakeside southwestern suburbs of Sydney, Cypress in, in the Hunter Valley, Horizons at Port Stevens north of Sydney. Bonville up the north coast of New South Wales, Tallwoods up the north coast of New South Wales and Mount Broughton down in the southern highlands of New South Wales. Lots of places to travel to for a golf trip that wasn't the blue mountains so now we're getting lots of competition this is they. when falls never saw this coming they were just staying they were doing little bits of work but on the back of the fires and on the back of the presentation of the golf course who's not going to want to go and see a shiny new toy as are the cycles of mother nature as soon as the drought and bushfires had beaten the daylights out of the region the wheel had turned and the seasonal rains had come back and by the late 1990s things were greening up again Players were visiting again and money was flowing into the club's coffers. A combination of saving money through the 90s and an increase in players and members proved well. By the time it was the year 2000, Wentworth Falls Country Club had installed irrigation to all of the fairways and had upgraded the original irrigation system itself to be a fully automatic system across the whole golf course. They also improved the irrigation pumping system between the two dams for water supply as well. Water supply itself was still somewhat of a concern, but the club was considering all options, including recycled water at that time. Water supply was never increased, but also never secured, as the options that they were looking at were blocked or considered too expensive. So was this finally a good move? Something that could keep playing punters and members happy and would secure the future of the club and people's expectations? Time would tell. But they were sort of trying to play catch up now. The club had money again and wanted to again do some improvements and this time the 4th and 10th green complexes were selected. Jamie Dawson from EnviroLink's design from down in Canberra was chosen to do the 4th green in the year 2000. And that's what's in place today. Jamie did that green that's on 4. But the weather would turn dry again in the early 2000s and things would take another blow in 2001. Without water security being solved... Water rationing would take precedence and whilst the course had the water infrastructure to distribute irrigation water where it was needed, it was only as good as the lack of water that they actually had to use. And needless to say, the presentation of the course struggled and again, so did the region. And this time, the raging black Christmas bushfires of 2001. So it wasn't even 10 years from the 94 fires. Absolutely got hammered again this time, 2001. In 2002 we moved on to the 10th green in terms of redesign. The club still had some money. They were trying to, you know, if you build it, they will come scenario. So the 10th green was selected to be done and we did that in-house. And I say in-house as the board liked what I had put forward. So it basically became my baby, the 10th green. So what's there now today is what I designed. The next couple of years were tough for the course regarding presentation. And in time, I would obviously leave Wentworth Falls, as you probably already know. Um, I left in 2004 and I went to Kazuma Golf Club. From the time we completed the 10th Green Reconstruction, which opened in 2002, up to today, 20 years later, there's only been very small improvements and changes to the golf course. Some new tee extensions here and there, some minor bunker and path improvements around the place, but no major changes taking place, no major improvements to the golf course. I wonder, was the club itself happy? with what they finally had on the golf course, could they still improve? We see lots of golf courses, lots of big-name golf courses still working on their golf course, still trying to improve. Wentworth Falls didn't. And I know that there was probably also some of the financial stress and difficulty in doing so. So maybe that's a reason why they didn't do it either. Not sure. But for 20 years to today, not a lot of major changes taking place. And there was a period in the 2000s where... Wentworth Falls Country Club was trying, they were trying to change and adjust and, and fit in with the, the new way of society and the way that people were viewing golf clubs. And they were trying to to be a little bit more, again, with the local community, be involved with the local community. And one of the things that they were doing as part of that was, was they were putting on a New Year's fireworks show on the golf course and that would basically close down an area around that middle paddock of the clubhouse. They were they were selling tickets and inviting people to the clubhouse on the balcony so you had the best view, but it was all about the local community. What they did was they had an exclusion zone around the fireworks. There's a big area on the practice fairway um, and the 18th fairway there Exclusion Zone and basically everyone on the north side of the Great Western Highway could see this fireworks show if you just looked up in the sky. I remember... Going home to mum and dad's on a couple of the quiet New Year's Eves that I had because I was working New Year's Day and that sort of stuff on the golf course, and uh, I remember just sitting out the back in the in uh, in the backyard with mum and dad and friends and and family, and we were you know having a New Year's Eve, and then you knew that at uh, there were the fireworks shows were was about to come on. It was only you know a couple of hundred meters away. And like the north side of Wentworth Falls could see this fireworks show. And it was something that people were lining the streets with kids. It was just incredible. And they were doing that in, uh, in the early 2000s and, and it got a great following. It was so popular. And people were starting to come from from much further afield than Wentworth Falls just so the kids could see such a massive fireworks display. And that was at the expense of the club. They were doing that for the community as well to, to gain a following, to, to engage with the community. But over time, that cost would become a little bit too difficult. And it was one of the things that they, they let go. And I remember feeling sad about that and I know a lot of friends in the area were also disappointed and young kids and that that were that were always looking forward to the new year show that Wentworth Falls Country Club used to put on so it was one of those things that they they struggled to do long term and it became an expense that they couldn't continue with and they had to drop it and once they dropped that it was almost like the the golf club had it started to fall away a bit from the community again but they were still trying so very hard but they were, just, they were just struggling to reconnect and, and, and to continue to remain relevant. Since that time, there was, there's been a steady decline in membership and revenue for those 20 years. To the point where Wentworth Falls Country Club is a bit of a battling club now, these days. Low membership, limited travelling visitors, limited opening hours of the clubhouse as it's not being utilised limited staff on course as they can't afford the four or five staff we used to have 20 odd years ago before I left to go to Katoomba. It's in a place that's a far cry from all those years ago to the fanfare and all the excitement and all the the big tournaments and the big names that played in the 1920s. That's where Wentworth Falls is today. And that's the story of Dan Suter's Sky High Design. What a story of Humps and Hollows, right? Looking back at the history of Wentworth Falls Country Club, I can't believe the golfing royalty that played there. That were happy to take the journey up to Wentworth Falls and play in exhibition matches every year. Dan Suter, Charlie Campbell, Fred Popperwell, Joe Kirkwood, Eric Appley, Tom Howard. Imagine that today. Those names would be the likes of Cam Smith, Mark Leishman, Adam Scott, Cam Davis, Lucas Herbert, Minwoo Lee. That's That's the calibre we're talking about. I know that would draw a crowd if it were an exhibition match at a public access golf course because it's a public access golf course. Wentworth Falls was always open to the public. It had a full membership at one point in the 80s but you could still play golf there as a a visitor so it was never going to be an exclusive private club. That was never the goal from R.M. Pitt in the original days and looking back there were people like the once Lord Mayor of Sydney that lived in the original clubhouse for a couple of years. Old mate Coot, one half of Angus and Coot, jewellers who sponsored the events there. Nick Farr-Jones as a kid and his brothers who were regular visitors there playing golf and footy with the other juniors of the club. Ib Sorensen, the gardener and the son of a famous Danish-Australian landscape designer in Paul Sorensen. Edwina Kennedy. I mean, what an incredible story Edwina's is one of the best female golfers to come out of the golf club and one of the best female golfers we've ever had in Australia. And there's also the local family connections that worked at the club and helped build the club through the years, like Ken Hansen, the secretary manager, and his sons that helped sprig the fairways out in the back paddock with the South African Cooch, Alan Horrocks, who went on to be a greenkeeper there working on course, and his parents, who were deeply involved with the club at board level. Now, they're just two of the many family connections. And I could, I guess in a way, say the same about my dad being on the board and me working on course being part of the club's history too, I guess. If I'm looking at it in that way. Thinking about the history of Wentworth Falls Country Club, it really had three lives in my mind. The first was from inception in 1913, up until the original clubhouse burnt down in 1948 when all was lost in the fire. The second, from scraping things together after the clubhouse fire, to then rebuilding the club as a whole and moving towards a new clubhouse and a new layout of the golf course in 1976. And finally, from the all-new Wentworth Falls Country Club in 1976, through the good times of the 80s, reaching the heights of a full membership in 1988 and the early 90s, followed by the slow downturn from then on to today, to where it is today. Does Wentworth Falls Country Club have a fourth life in it, I wonder? What might that look like? I don't know. But what I do know is that Wentworth Falls Country Club started its life with the vision and energy from a few good men. Men who wanted to change the town of Wentworth Falls and really give the township something that would stamp it on the destination map of an early growing city of Sydney and holiday region of the Blue Mountains. The club owes an incredible amount to Robert Matcham Pitt. He really was the founding father of the golf club. The other men that started the club with RM, I believe, were key parts for sure, but no one was more invested than RM. He had the vision and indeed the contacts to bring it all together from the very beginning. From where I sit, it's disappointing that Wentworth Force Country Club doesn't celebrate its rich history because there's so much there to celebrate great names, great people, great events. But a lot of it was lost back in the fire of 1948, and most of, if not all, of that history has long since been forgotten. Until this podcast, that is. I got some info from the centenary history book of Wentworth Falls Country Club, but that only accounts for about 30% of the info in this podcast. The rest is my own research. So like I said, no one at the club really knows this rich history even exists. And as you guys have all now heard, you've probably heard more than most of the people that, that are alive now today from the club. So now you've heard the story you're probably wondering why I chose Wentworth Falls in the first place. Easy for me to choose, right? Because the 16th tee was my backyard? I played golf there most of my life and worked on the golf course? But no, they're not the reasons at all. It's very simple. One part was that doing my research for the Aussie golf history segments in episode 11 and 20 about Dan Suter and Ernest Banks respectively – I found those two guys had been part of Wentworth Falls Country Club, but I never knew why. I was like, here are these big names. Why would they? Why would they at Wentworth Falls? What the hell's going on there? Big names back then. And they worked at little old Wentworth Falls Country Club. To me, it's just Wentworth Falls Country Club. Added to that, and the main reason behind why I chose Wentworth Falls Country Club was that I've always had this one question Did Dan Souter? really designed the golf course. I wanted to find out the truth to this story, in inverted commas, about Dan Souter. Was it a rumour over the 100-plus year history of the club? Or if he actually did, was it a fleeting visit to offer an opinion back in the day and then it was used from that point on? After all, as you've just heard, these days it's just a small member-based golf club that not, it's not very busy. It's old for sure. It's public access. It's semi-private. It's got a membership. It's outside the big smoke of Sydney, wedged between being considered a country course and a metropolitan course. And as you know, I love my architecture. So I started out with this question. Did Dan Souter really design the golf course of Wentworth Falls Country Club? I thought I knew the club pretty well, being a member there of, for most of my life and working out on the golf course, as you may have heard previously in episode one of the podcast, way back when. And that's what I'd done most of my, most of the years in my early greenkeeping career. I never heard, in all that time, I never heard anyone talk about Dan Souter. So here was this, to me, random mention of Dan Souter whenever there was a throwback to the beginning of the club in any history commentary about who designed the golf course. Yet, I'd never heard anyone, any mention of his name from anywhere within the club itself by anyone after being a member for over 25 years. Suter's name was only ever honoured and attached to some of the best golf courses of Australia when it came to architecture, namely Kingston Heath in Melbourne and Concord and Eleanor in Sydney, to name but a few. And of course, we know that he threw his hat in the ring for Royal Adelaide and New South Wales during the inception of their respective current golf courses, but he missed out. This question had been burning in my brain for so many years now, and the past 18 months seemed like as good a time as any to find out. And now you know, and I know, that yes, he did originally design the golf course at Wentworth Falls Country Club all those years ago. Now some might say that Wentworth Falls Country Club has seen its time, has run its course. It's no longer a place golfers want to visit. Has it though, I wonder? What's changed with the golf course that makes it no longer a must-play for travelling golfers? Or should that question be, what hasn't changed? Is staying the same a bad thing? Sure, quality isn't what it was, even on six years ago when I last played at Wilma Falls. Or is that an expectation thing? Does the course just need money to improve presentation, because that's what people expect now? Is there more competition with other golf courses? Are there better ones out there that you can play before you'll go and play Wentworth Falls Country Club? Yes is pretty much the answer to those questions, if I'm being honest. What happened to all the members they once had? Are they all getting too old to play anymore? Or have they just passed away? That might sound a little bit harsh, but I know plenty of club members that have literally passed away from Wentworth Falls. Now, like many older courses in that member public access level, do they have an image problem? As society has changed... Has a club been left behind? Is the reason people aren't wanting to play there because they've never heard of it, or it doesn't have the name of the new high-profile architect that designs golf courses? Is that it? Because the golf course is tired, old, and stale in an architectural sense, and needs to be upgraded? Does the club need new high-profile people to be the Robert Pitts or and John McLaughlin's and so on that started the club in? and once donated much time and money to build the momentum of the brand. What would be the equivalent these days? A Nick Politis, Russell Crowe, or Anthony Lapalia? All from Sydney that own sporting teams? Lindsay Fox from Melbourne, who owns Phillip Island Racetrack? The Shaheen brothers from Adelaide, who built and, and own the new mega racetrack, The Bend, at Tailand Bend? These guys put money in behind what they're passionate about, and they're wealthy enough that they can do it. Is that what it takes in a similar way to what it took when Wentworth Falls Country Club was started? Big names, high profiles, money, a star golf course architect and a heap of professional exhibition matches to put the golf course on the map? Not to mention the sale of a land to eventually fund the exercise long term along with a huge clubhouse that catered for the travelling golfer and made them feel at home during their time staying and playing. Has golf become transactional? Check in, play, check out, go home. It was once a much longer experience, often over a weekend or a few days. Seldom was it just a six-hour exercise from the moment you left home to the moment you arrived back at home. That said, we are starting to see more golf courses offer ways for players to stay on site now. The old clubs like the Victoria Golf Club still have their charming clubhouses with accommodation, but now we're seeing resorts on course with accommodation, but it's not only the resorts. It's the different versions other than just the big resort building, the more intimate, immersive on-site accommodation, actually being out on the course next to the fairways and greens. It's the cottages at Barn Bugle next to the awesome practice green and first sea area, the remote rooms of the new peninsula Kingswood by the 10th fairway, the bungalows at Tallwoods behind the 12th green, the golf lodges at 13th beach overlooking the first fairway. What goes around comes around, right? Are we going back to a time when we want to be staying on site at a golf course like these new trendy options and the classic Victoria, Barwon Heads and Royal Sydney Golf Clubs of the world with their cherished clubhouse accommodation? I'm asking all these questions about Wentworth Falls Country Club, but I feel they could be asked about so many golf courses and golf clubs that are struggling in a modern world. Is the shiny new toy, be it a new golf course, a difficult proposition of competition for the golfer's dollar in a modern golfing world? How does an aged existing golf club stay relevant and a place for people to continue to enjoy without being left behind? Or is it solely keeping up with the golfer's expectations of what good golf is, regardless of whether it's correct or not? Because I'll sit here and argue that green golf courses are not good. Not good for for the environment, not good for budgets. They don't sit well. They don't present architecturally well, and give you a feel of being in the the local environment, which I believe all golf courses should do. So regardless of whether we think that people's idea of what good golf is or not, is that what they should be doing? Or is that a fool's errand, fraught with disaster? Golf courses and golf clubs can't simply just exist anymore like they once did with the turnstile spinning where people followed other people through it. If people smell that something's not quite right, they won't even bother. Trust me, I've been there. Too much choice these days. Is that it? If I can't play here, I'll just go and play over there. Now, that's all a much bigger conversation than this podcast and indeed this episode. So I'll leave that part alone. But I'll leave it there for you to think about and ponder. And if you do want to talk to me about this podcast, my thoughts, or your thoughts, feel free to get in touch with me on socials, you know, the Golfing Greenkeeper on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter. Email the keeper at gmail. Happy to chat. Happy to chat. And those of you who know me personally, give me a call. I don't care. Happy to chat about it. Maybe we can start to do some things. But it's not just about Wentworth Falls. This is a conversation, I think, about bigger things. So I'll leave it with you. I hope you enjoyed this podcast episode of Aussie Golf History, Dan Souter's Sky High Design, because that's what he did. Wentworth Falls is up in the sky. It's a kilometre nearly up in the sky. And I hope you also like the philosophical nature of the questions that followed. A lot went into this one, and that was mostly due to the fact that a lot of the golf course's history isn't in the history book of the club. Go work that out. I want to take a moment to thank those that helped me with lots of conversations and information that helped me fill in the blanks and look in the right direction and ask the right questions. Peter Hansen and Al Horrocks for their information in the 70s. John Armstrong for the centenary book, the golf club. Nick Farr-Jones for his generous time telling me his story and connection to Wentworth Falls when he was a kid. Ross Howard. I spoke to Ross Howard, who's the son of Al Howard, who's the grandson. Ross is the grandson of Tom Howard. How's that for a lineage of golf? And the Australian Golf Heritage Society. Ross was most helpful in filling in some of the blanks of the design work that was done by his father. Ross was a kid, he was telling me, when uh, he recalls, his father doing work for Wentworth Falls. So I want to thank those people. And my dad, Peter Smith, for some of the insight into the club during the 90s that dad helped me with, just to get an understanding of how everything was working from a board level. And I also want to thank Patsy Trench who lives in the UK, and uh, we're back and forth with a few emails about RM Pitt and the uh, and the Kura property. She's the great great granddaughter. Patsy's the great great granddaughter of George Matcham Pitt, who was RM's father. So um, George had twelve children, and RM was one of those twelve. So Patsy's Patsy's a great great granddaughter of George Matcham Pitt, and uh, who was the original owner of the land. Kura uh, property in Wentworth Falls so thanks to Patsy and also Michael Burge who she had been speaking with who'd written a story um, and a lot of and knows a lot of information about the flower farms the daffodil farm that RM had at Wentworth Falls on the grounds of what is now the Blue Mountains Grammar School so uh, I must say a thank you to Patsy Trench over in the UK there's a lot gone into that so I want to thank everyone I look guys that was really enjoyable for me a lot of time spent on it. I really hope you guys enjoyed that. I hope you enjoyed picking into the history. I'm going to do other golf clubs. I've already got a few started. They do take time. There's a lot in that. Um, and there's a lot in the ones coming in the future. Um, but but I hope to bring you some more. I do want to chat with you about it. So feel free to get in touch with me. And, and, and a bit of feedback. If you liked it, if you thought it was boring as batshit, let me know. I hope you found it entertaining. And I think Wentworth Falls, the story... Look, I had no idea it was as big as it was, so I just kept digging. That's why it took so bloody long. So much can be said for a lot of clubs in similar situations as well, so quite interesting, and, and maybe you'll start thinking about that, clubs that you grew up around. You might, not, you might be new to history and listening all that about golf in New South Wales and Sydney, and, uh, and, and build your own perceptions, and, and it might interest you. It might pique your interest about a club that you go and play. You might want to go and ask some questions, but I think history is important. I think it's important because you heard about the fire at Wentworth Falls. It's quite easy to lose it all, and they did. And I'd hate to think that we've got all these blank holes all over the place. I think history is important. It's important to understand where we came from. It's important to understand where we came from because that way we can build where we want to go. And I think in golf we need to, you know, I'll speak from an architectural and maintenance perspective. I think understanding how we get to the wrong place sometimes with golf course presentation and golf course um, vegetation, golf course design and architecture, What, where wrong decisions were made, in my opinion, in the past, to know how to do them differently. And I'm going to talk about Royal Sydney, even though I've got nothing to do with the joint, but I really hope that that they can get that through what they're trying to achieve down there because it's special. It's got great history but it started out so differently and, and there were decisions made there, in my opinion, that that have given us the golf course that's there today. It's not a terrible golf course, but it could be so much better. That's just my opinion. I'll stand by that. That's fine. Um, people can shoot me down for saying that about Royal Sydney, but I think it could be so much better. And when you when you read into the history of Royal Sydney, you'll you'll blow your mind just how incredible the land was that they originally had to work with. So guys, long one, thank you for listening. Please like, share, subscribe. I don't do a lot of history stuff, but I've got, some, I've got some real good ones coming as well. Hope you enjoyed that one. I keep saying it because I really do appreciate you taking all the time out to listen. Thank you so very much. Thank you to everyone that helped me out with that podcast as well we're in, the, in the research department. Um, lots of conversations, lots of emails with lots of people and time spent on the phone and, and uh, most helpful and without the help, I couldn't have put that together. There were some key blanks that I've been waiting to fill and, uh, and those people were, were very most helpful and generous in helping me fill those blanks. So thank you to everyone. Thank you guys for listening and don't forget to check out the show notes. I'll have lots of clickables in the show notes. You've always got to check out the show notes after you've heard the podcast because there's going to be all heap of things there to connect you with bits and pieces that I've mentioned throughout the podcast itself. I'll leave you with my favorite line, you hit them clean, we'll keep them green and I'll catch up with you very soon.